We're talking about uh, my favorite theme, Jesus plus nothing. And, uh, you know, we all have grids and boundaries and things that we add to Jesus. Well, you know, you can believe in Jesus, but... And uh, we want to talk about that today. Actually, we're going through the book of Galatians. We're doing it this month. I will not be with you speaking here next week because you have a guest speaker. But we are going through... uh, we're going through Galatians. For those of you who are visiting for the first time, you're thinking, who is that guy? Uh, Sarah was the one who picked out the video. Okay, I need, you need to know that. And she, she's gone out for coffee and donuts. Uh, where is Sarah, by the way? Oh, she's right there. All right. Anyway, um, my name is Gary Kinneman, and I've been helping the church during this season of transition. I was a pastor of a large church in Mesa for 25 years. And uh, I couldn't take it anymore. And uh, now I'm just a pastor for a few months at a time, and then it's bon voyage, you know. Anyway, I've, I've been helping churches for the last seven years, eight years, in interim ministry and preaching and doing consulting and working with community leaders. And so that's who I am. My wife's here with me. Again, if you're visiting, I guess we've got some guests here today. My wife's here. We have a, a long-term marriage, only 43 years, and... Uh, Kids and grandkids, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, uh, for humor, uh, and there's going to be more of it. God helping us, and Jesus, I pray for you to speak to us about how you really are all we need, how you, Jesus, plus nothing changes everything. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, You know, I think last week maybe we talked about smoking and drinking. Did we talk about that a little bit last week? That's the one thing you remember, right? Okay. Okay, you don't want to remember that part. Okay. All right. Um, Let me ask you this. Is there anybody here at at one that plays poker? Is anybody that plays poker? The chairman of the council, Anita... Is the only one who plays poker or is the only one who's willing to put her hand up, okay? So uh, how many of you have played it at least? You've played it once or twice. Come on now. Uh, okay, see, a sin is a sin, all right? <laughs> I, I've, never, I've never played, but, but I've had people explain it to me, and I, I read about it online. Um, just kidding. Um, you know, in poker, every hand, you can win with, with any hand, every hand, right? That's what a poker face is about. You can have, like, dirt in your hand, and you can still win. Every hand has potential. I mean, if you've got two eights or two nines or... Uh, but there's one hand that, that trumps. I don't know if that's a word you can use in poker. It's a pinochle word. But... Uh, there's one hand that trumps every other hand that's, that wins po- the, wins the hand no matter what. What's that called? A... Yeah, well, see, you didn't raise your hand before, but she knows what this hand is. Okay, Mary. No. Yes. Uh, oh, okay, okay, okay. It's, 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 I'm just kidding, Mary. Okay. Can we still be friends? Okay. Um, anyway, it's a royal flush. And a royal flush is the highest five cards, ace, king, queen, Jack 10 in the same suit. Now there's a flush, like 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, but the royal flush is the highest cards. 
And that, that hand takes every hand, okay? Now, I'm talking about poker to help you understand the Bible. Because every verse in the Bible is a winner. Every, wor- every verse in God's word, uh, every verse in the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation is God's word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We talk about the, the, plenary, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, which means that every word is inspired and all of it together is inspired. But that doesn't mean that all of it has the same weight. If you take the Bible and you just put it into a Christian religion blender, you're not going to know what to believe because the Bible talks about a lot of different things and it talks about the same things a lot of different ways. There are some places in the Bible that I refer to as royal flush places. Uh, we don't uh, just... Actually, I left my Bible in my car this morning. Does somebody have a Bible with them? Just a... No, that's not going to work. I, okay, I need, I need... They're going to give me a Bible. Oh, here, Sarah's got a Bible. She's got a real Bible. It's got a black leather cover. All right. If you've got a paperback Bible, you're just starting out. Okay. So... <clears throat> You know, I, I uh, well, that's interesting. That verse means a lot to you, huh, Sarah? Wow. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, I want to show you something here. All right, the first part of the Old Testament, uh, first part, the first part of the Bible is called what? The Old Testament. The, the second part of the Bible is called what? And the third part of the Bible is called the concordance. All right, so there's a long concordance in here. Okay, so... This is the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. As Christian believers, we use this little bit here to understand all of this. This is a basic rule of Bible interpretation. It's all God's word, but you have to look for key themes. And for Christians, key themes are what's taught in the New Testament. You know, this is what distinguishes us, for example, from the Mormons. Because they now, they have a third part. It's called the Doctrines and Covenants in the Book of Mormon. They've got, they've got scriptures. And their scriptures, we're not Jewish because we have the New Testament. We still have the Jewish scriptures, but we're Christians because we follow Jesus as the Messiah. And we use the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. A Jewish community, they, they have the same Old Testament that we have. Same one. The Mormons have another testament. And so that's what distinguishes them. They're not all, they're not like the rest of us, just Christians who are trying to figure out what the Bible says in our multiple denominations. The Mormons are unique in that they have what they consider revelation. And uh, for the longest time, I don't know if you know this, they, they did not say they were Christians. They've been saying that now. But we use the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. Now, you can take the New Testament and put it in a blender and not understand exactly what to believe. It's called proof texting. You know, you have a verse here, you have a verse there. Well, if that's true, then why does the Bible say this? Okay. Well, again, an essential rule of Bible interpretation is that, you, you know, you look at the whole, but you also understand that there's certain things that trump everything else. Grace trumps the law. This is the biggest trump card in the New Testament. There are, and there are a couple of books in the New Testament that are very specific in helping us understand the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. One is the book of Romans. It talks about salvation. What does it really mean to be saved? This is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. How do you go to heaven? 
It's based on the finished work of Jesus. And the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, it's the only book in the New Testament that systematically talks about salvation. So why would you take a verse in the book of Revelation, which is really obscure, or take a, book, uh, a verse in the book of James, which really doesn't address salvation at all. It, it addresses what it means to live on our life for Christ. Faith without works is dead. Why would you take those places and, and kind of redefine the doctrine of salvation? Salvation uh, is declared, uh, and it's specifically salvation by grace alone, is declared in Acts chapter 15. We talked about that last week. By grace we're saved, period. is Jesus plus nothing. Romans is the only book in the whole Bible that explains salvation systematically. And then Galatians, which is our text of study, Galatians is about how this works out in the Christian community. What does it mean to be saved by grace alone? Does it mean that we don't have to worry about anything that we ever do again? Of course not. But we have to start with this, this royal flush that says that our relationship with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. So um, with that in mind... Uh, I want to read our text today. Um, this is our text, our key text. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, if we could pop this up here. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God because you live right or you keep living right. Is that what it says? Okay. In Christ Jesus, okay, this is the key. We're in Jesus. Christ in me, Paul says, is the hope of, it's the hope of glory. In Christ Jesus, you are, almost all of you, you're all what? Children. I want to really help you understand what that means. Children of God through faith. Okay? We come into relationship with God through faith. Now, <clears throat> I have some things I want to make, uh, I want to observe. We're going to talk about this verse, but we're going to talk about the context of this verse in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. And uh, I want to make some real basic observations about this whole issue of Jesus plus nothing, what it means to be saved by grace alone, okay? First of all, rules are necessary, but they don't change people. Rules control people. How, how many of you, and I say this all the time, I said it last week, my wife gets really tired of hearing me say it. It's not funny to her at all anymore. But how many of you are raising children or you've raised children or you've seen children? All right. So uh, in raising children, do you have rules? Have you ever told your children, no, you can't do that? And what do they say? Why? Okay, they don't understand. But you have rules, right? Okay. Have your rules ever changed your children? Have you ever just said... Uh, you, know, you, you said, don't do that, and, and they say, why? And you explain why, and they say, oh, I didn't realize that. I'll never do that again. Okay? <laughs> rules simply don't change anybody. Um, we have signs, rules. I mean, we drive from uh, Southeast Gilbert. We live just on the other side of Gateway Airport. We come down, uh, the t we come, get on the 202, come south on, on uh, Ellsworth, and when you go back the other way on Ellsworth, there are all kinds of rules. There's, there's, it says, don't tailgate, you know, drive carefully, you know, and, and then there's this rule, it says speed limit. Okay, so driving in Ellsworth North, the speed limit is how much? It's up north, it's 50. How fast you go if it says speed limit, 50? 55. 
Okay. 60. All right. If it says on, on, the, on the highway to California on I-10, it says speed limit, 75. How fast you go? 80. So you see, rules don't change people. They don't even change Christians. All right? Christians drive over the speed limit. Okay? Um, so rules don't change people. Uh, and, you know, we, we have to understand this. There, there's, there's two trees in the garden. There's the tree of life, and that has to do with our relationship with Jesus and his finished work, and he's all I need is Jesus plus nothing. And then there's the tree of rules, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you know what's right, do it. If you know what's wrong and you don't do it, you become more like God. And this is the biggest problem for Christians. We believe in Jesus, but we also are very attracted to this ancient tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we think that it's through our effort that somehow we become more like Jesus. You know, we kind of lay out the rules. We have rules for our children. We quote the Bible to our children, which I never did. And this is another whole discussion. But if you quote the Bible to your children to help you get them to obey, it'll just turn your kids against God. So rules are necessary, but they don't change anybody. In the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, God gave us what's called the law. The moral code and the religious ceremonies revealed uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai for three reasons. Okay, now I'm going to show you two. I know there are three, but I'm going to show you two. Okay, first of all, to show what God is like. What's God like? He's perfect. Okay. Um, secondly, God has given us the rules to show us what, what we're like. What are, we, what are we like? We're not perfect. Okay? Um, just turn to the person next to you and tell them, you're not perfect. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's not hard to do, is it? All right. Not perfect. Okay. Have you ever heard people say, when you're talking to them about your faith, you're talking about your, your faith, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm a pretty good person? Have you ever heard that? I'm a pretty good person. What does that mean? We're only about 15 miles from a federal penitentiary in Florence, okay? And if you ask the people in the federal penitentiary, and I've talked to people who work in the prisons, and I've done some prison ministry. I actually did a, a wedding for a guy that was a, a woman. And he, he was in there for murder, and, uh, and he was almost murdered himself, and they transferred him, and it was just a miracle. I mean, they got married, and I did their wedding in the prison, and then they, he, got, he was paroled. It's just a miracle story. But if you ask anybody in the federal penitentiary what they're like, they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Okay. You know, some of those people have only killed one person. They had a bad day. How many of you have had a bad day? I won't ask how many of you have killed somebody. I wouldn't want to put you on the spot, but I, I will ask you this. How many of you have wanted to kill somebody? All right. All right, so well, now we're back to... Uh, Sin is sin, right? Jesus says, uh, he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a rule. Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if in a fit of rage you call somebody a nasty name, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So what does it mean to be a pretty good person when God is, is perfect? Okay? Um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is, again, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 46. 
Now, this is uh, well into the sermon. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, we're not talking about the IRS. We're talking about people like Matthew, who actually wrote this, who was a tax collector, and he was working for the occupation army, the Romans. A pagan country was occupying Palestine, and tax collectors were Jews who were hired by the Romans to collect taxes for the Romans. You know, whatever people didn't like about our, uh, you know, our occupation of Iraq, at least we didn't hire Iraqis to collect taxes to pay for the American military. So these were scoundrels. And uh, Matthew is writing, really, he's, he's writing this. And are not even the tax collectors doing that? They love people who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Pagans. Um, I think I said this in a message a few weeks ago. You know, we love God only as much as we love the person that we love the least. So, be perfect, Jesus says. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So, how many pretty good people do we have here? It's not going to get you very far. You've got to be as perfect as God. All right? That's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If a man looks at a woman wrongly, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But it's not about the act. It's about the act in your head. Pretty good people don't commit, commit adultery, but pretty good people commit adultery in their head. Pretty good people don't kill other people, but pretty good people would like to kill people. I'm a pastor. There's some people I wanted to kill. What? Well, I just want them to go away. You know, here's how I define perfect, okay? Perfect. Next slide. Doing all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. Say that with me. Doing all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. Has anybody looked at their watch yet to see how much more time you have before this is over? Has anybody thought about what they're going to have for lunch? Anybody thought about what they're going to have to lunch for lunch? Okay, you're not going to heaven. Okay, because you haven't done all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. Okay, how many of you in the middle of a prayer have thought about something else? You're not going to heaven either. Okay, would Jesus be distracted by the score of the Super Bowl while he's praying to the Father? Tell me. See, you know, in our, in our understanding of the Christian faith, we bring a lot of religion into it, a lot of external behaviors. And, uh, you know, we, we lose sight of the fact that God is perfect. In order to have a relationship with God, we have to be perfect. Okay? All the right, you've got to do all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. Um, so, um, have, you ever, have you ever seen, there's a website, you know, uh, most of you know I've got a pretty kind of edgy sense of humor, but there's a website called despair.com. Okay? And they sell demotivational posters. <laughs> you know, instead of posters, you know, you see these in the office, you know, courage, and there's a guy, you know, he's jumping off a cliff or something with, with a parachute on. 
they sell demotivational uh, posters. They also, they also have demotivational staff training videos on despair.com. You can buy, you can buy cups, mugs, greeting cards. You've got to look at it, okay? You're dying, man. Okay, so let's look at... Uh, this is their signature poster, despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> they have, despair.com has a poster about rules, about being a pretty good person, about, well, let's, let's look at the poster. Failure. When your very best just isn't good enough. <laughs> You know, when you're running a race, my, my, uh, my granddaughter, she's 16, she loves cross-country. And, and I've, seen, I've seen the cross-country. I, I saw that it's like 300 girls are running. You know, it's like, and then she comes in like 175th. You know, it's like, and, and yet no, there's only one person that wins. And they're not perfect because, you know, they ran the race faster last, the last time. You know, this is, you ever, have you ever seen the Olympics, you know? People win by like a three hundredths of a second photo, photo finish. You know, we've all felt this way, and we've, we've felt this way about our relationship with God. Which is why I really love the verse that says the mercies of God are new every morning and through the rest of the day. Okay. So, Look at uh, James chapter, this is, this is a very biblical concept, okay? I'm not just making this up, I'm not trying, I'm trying to be logical. Look what James says, James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet drives over the speed limit one time, okay, yet stumbles at just, stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by what? Observing the law, by keeping the rules. Okay? Uh, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay? The, uh, the law, yeah, you know, when you, when you see those speed limit signs, every time you see a speed limit sign, I want you to be reminded of your fallen nature. Because when you see the rule, you want to violate the rule. Okay, I saw in, at Knott's Berry Farm one time, they had a sign in the men's room that it was like there was a misdemeanor and a, and a fine of several hundred dollars for writing on the bathroom wall. And I'd never written on a bathroom wall until I saw that sign. You know? Actually, I didn't write on the wall, but I have to tell you, I was sorely tempted. Okay, I was kind of looking around for a magic marker. You know, you, what is it? You know, when you, t when you tell... Um, we, live on, we, live on a par we live on a parkway. It's 25 uh, mile an hour speed zone. In Maryland, she, I drive her crazy because dr people drive down... It's Morrison Ranch Parkway. It's I, you know, it's a, it's a residential area, but it's divided with a median, with grass, and people roar down that thing, you know? And... Uh, I was walking out to the mailbox, and somebody was just coming down there, you know. And so I, 
You know, I just go like this, slow down. People have children playing signs. It's a real huge problem in the neighborhood. I go, slow down. And there's, there's a girl in the car. She looks at me, and she steps on the gas and roared out down the street. You know, what, what is it in us? And we, we all do this. We're, we don't do all the right things at all the right times for all the right, right reasons. There's some people, you, you know, have you heard the term passive-aggressive? Yeah, those are people who are really nice and, and, and when they don't obey the rules. And the, and the more pressure you put on them, the nicer they are and they less, less they, the less they respond. What is it? It's our sinful nature. The law of God, uh, it, it shows us, uh, it, it's, it shows us, uh, we become conscious of sin. The law of God is like an x-ray. It has the power to expose, but not the power to heal. Rules change nobody. The law of God shows the unreachable distance between what we are and what God originally made us to be. God's law is like a spotlight on a cockroach. You know, when you turn the light on, what does a cockroach do? Right? And I, I, thought, I thought, well, we, gotta, we have a song about that. We have a famous Christian song about that. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a roach like me. You know, wretch kind of sounds cool. A wretch is actually worse than a roach. But nobody wants to be a roach. I kind of think, wouldn't it be bad to be a roach? You can run really fast. You can fly once in a while. You know, you got a lot of friends. You reproduce often. You know, it's like, uh, but that song will never be the same for you, will it? Praise the Lord, because you sing it without thinking about it. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And it's very clear in Romans chapter 7, he's not talking about his pre-Christian life. He's talking about having received Jesus. Now there's a war that goes on inside of you. People who are wretched, wretched don't say, what a, oh, what a wretched man I am. But when you, when you start understanding what God expects of you, there's a battle that goes on inside of you. And you keep reaching for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you, you want to work on that problem instead of abiding in Christ and getting to know him and letting his Holy Spirit work miracles of change in you. So, you know, where are you on the righteousness scale? Okay, so people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Okay, there's heaven. There's perfect. It's really good. It's pretty good. It's pretty bad really bad, a roach, and then you go to hell. So, you know, either you're saved by grace or you're not saved. This is the whole point, okay? Either you are covered over with the perfect righteousness of Christ, or you're not. Either you've been born again and you have a new nature, or you don't. It's not about works. It's not about works before. It's not about works uh, afterwards, even though we've been saved for good works, we've been saved for good works, but we're never saved by good works. We are saved by grace alone. Now, so where are you on the righteousness scale? So how on earth, the question is, how on earth can anyone on earth be that perfect? 
Has anyone ever done all the right things for all the right re- all, at all the right times for all the right reasons? Has anybody ever in human history done all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons? Anybody? Jesus, thank you very much. Jesus. Okay? And this perfect Jesus now gives you a new nature. You get his nature. When you become a Christian, you're born again. You get, a, you get his perfect righteousness. He takes your sin and he dies for your, your sin. Not just your sins, not just the bad things that you think and do. But he dies for your sin nature. I am crucified with Christ. And this is why baptism, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a symbol here. In baptism, in immersion, the person we bury them. Okay? Because we're crucified with Christ. The old nature is put to death. And then we come out resurrected to new life. And we're clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ forever. Look at this verse. This is to me one. You talk about, you talk about an ace of hearts, you know, or a, a royal flush. Look at this next verse. Okay. Hebrews chapter 10. By one sacrifice, he has made, what are the next two words? Perfect forever. Those who are being sanctified. Those who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. By one sacrifice, which is perfect. Okay, When Jesus died on the cross, uh, he said famously, it is finished. He wasn't just saying, my life is over. In the Greek, that's the word tetelestai. Has anybody ever heard that word? It's sort of a, a famous word in a Christian language because of what it, what it means. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Say that. Tetelestai. That is a Greek word that means, every, it mean, when Jesus says, it's finished, it's a Greek word that means everything is perfect. It's in the perfect tense. Nothing more needs to be done. It's a replay, in many ways, of Genesis chapter 1. At the end of each day, when God creates uh, something, at the end of the day, what does God say? It is good. Okay. Jesus is bringing us a new creation through his death and resurrection. And on the cross, he doesn't say this is good. He says this is finished. There's nothing else to do. To tell us die. It's perfect. Everything has been fulfilled. The work is done. Now, in this verse in Hebrews, by one sacrifice he has made what? Perfect. That is exactly the same Greek word in exactly the same tense, tetelestai. It's the perfect tense. It, we get the word telephone, you know, where you, you're talking to somebody at a distance. You know, it's, now there's a connection made and the distance goes away. Telescope. And this is tetelestai, and it's just tele, tele, teleo in Greek, but it's an extended form, and it's exactly the same form that by one perfect sacrifice, he has made you and me perfect to telestai until you do something wrong. Was well, that what it says? It says forever. You are perfect because of Christ. So to turn to the person next to you and say to them, earlier you said you're not perfect. Now I want you to tell them you're perfect. <laughs> and that's really hard because you know the truth, right? Okay. So, so, 
There are three reasons. Remember, I said there are three reasons for the law. Number one, to show what God is like. What is God like? Perfect. To show what we're not like? Not perfect. And the law, the purpose of the law is to show that we have a problem with our nature. Not just with the things we do, but our nature inside of us. There's a war going on. Okay. Um, look at Galatians. Now we go back to Galatians chapter 4. But the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. You're a prisoner of sin. Uh, before the, before this came, uh, faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Rules don't change anybody, okay? Locked up until faith should be revealed, okay? We don't just have a problem with doing bad things or not enough good things. We have a problem inside us. We don't have the capacity to live up to our own standards, let alone God's. How many of you have said to yourself, I'm never doing that again? How many of you have said something like that? And you did it the next day. Poor people. God have mercy on you. I hope you go to heaven with me. You know, you know, just the way we understand salvation, because the Bible has lots of rules. I mean, even the Sermon on the Mount becomes rules. But you've got to understand that it's not getting Jesus in your life and now obeying the rules to make sure that you finish the work well. I love Philippians where it says uh, that or in um, Hebrews, where it says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And in Philippians, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work within you, both uh, to will and to do his good pleasure. Okay? So, um, when Jesus came to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was like an associate pastor. He was in a big church. He wasn't the senior pastor, but he was part of the Jewish religious community. He was a very righteous man. And he came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he was afraid uh, that his friends would find out about him talking to this controversial man. Came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He didn't do all the right things for all the right reasons at all the right times, but he did want to see Jesus. And he said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus said to him, oh, Nicodemus, go home. You're at the top end of the curve. You're not just a pretty good person. You're a really good person. Is that what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? You must be born again. You must be born again. In other words, you don't just have a behavior problem. You're not going to fix yourself by eating stuff from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only way that you're going to enter the kingdom of God is if your nature gets changed. You have to get a new nature. And this is what Paul is very good about explaining in the book of Romans. That salvation is not just about becoming a better person somehow. Where you go from a pretty good person to a really good person. You know, now you're going to live like a Christian because you're going to really work on it. The whole message is about how our relationship with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. I get the nature of Christ in me and that's all I need. And that's what changes me forever. So, uh, look at this word. Uh, we, need, we need to be born again. We need to be, say it with me, regenerated. Okay, you've heard of the term regenerated, right? I just, I've just emphasized 
some words in there, some English, uh, some English, some letters to point out a very important word, regenerated. So there's Genesis, there's genes, there's Genesis, there's regeneration, there's uh, regenerated. What does it mean to be regenerated? It means that you get a new nature, that you get new genes. You get the very genes, you get the very DNA of God. You get the life of Christ in you. It's incredible! This, When that happens, we don't just please God, we become His children. We are all children of God, okay, through faith, okay? The, so, which leads me to number two. The Christian faith is not about rules, slaves, crime and punishment, employees, getting fired. It's about what? Relationship, family. God is Father. Look at Galatians 3.26 again. You are all sons of God, children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. You aren't just a follower of Jesus, like he's the main person in your religion, and you do what he says. When you're born again, you become a child of God. A child of God. You've been regenerated. Look at First uh, John chapter 3. Uh, it says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's, what? Seed remains in him. Now this is PG-13. The word seed in Greek is sperma. That's the Greek word. The sper- a sperm of God remains in you. You get a new nature. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. That's, that's a sweet sound that saves a roach like me. So, again, how many of you, how many of you, have, you have raised children, you're raising children, you've seen children? How many? Okay, all right. Um, how many of you love your children? Well, we're not sure. Okay, after all this. This isn't a trick question. Okay, how many of you love your children? Okay, how many of you love your children more than you love the neighbor's children? How many of you love your children more than you love the neighbor's children, even though your neighbors have better children? How many of you have had problems with your children? Kind of unforgivable problems but you still love them. What's wrong with you? You know, if they don't live up to your expectations, you shouldn't love them anymore. You know, when I say that, you think, you are, you know, you are in the wrong business. You know, you should sell cars or something, you know? Uh, when, I, when I say things like that, why do you still love them? What, let me ask you this question. Why do people think that about God, who is love, who has infinite love, whose grace is infinite? Like somehow his love is dampened because you've done something that doesn't please him. And he kind of turns his back on you. You know, you, one day and he turns sideways. Next day he turns this way. Five days in a row he turns this way. And the next thing you know, God, where did you go? And he says, I'm done with you. You know, what, where, and, and so what, what is it that makes God turn his back on us? Is there anything in heaven or hell that makes God turn his back on us? You know, it's, I've seen parents love the most perverted children. Some years ago, I, you know, I, I heard it was on the news. Some, some kid in New England had, had killed some kids in his school. And his dad, they had interviewed him, and his dad said, 
My son has done a monstrous thing. But my son is not a monster. When your children do wrong things, terrible things, guess who suffers the most? You do. Because you love that much. And we need to understand, we need to understand God's love, I think, from this perspective of family. It is a very powerful image because we all understand how powerful our love is for our children. I've got a really good friend in ministry, Hector Torres. He was, a, he, uh, was pastor of our Spanish language congregation. and We just uh, were with him not too long ago, Hector and I. We've been friends for years. We've done ministry literally all over the world together. And um, <clears throat> Hector's kids grew up with ours, and his oldest daughter, uh, Heidi, when she was 17, she ran away from home. And they had no idea where she was for two or three weeks. They had no word from her for two or three weeks. And Hector, and Hector, who understands his grace message as well as anybody, he said, what was amazing to me when I look back on that is that when he, Heidi ran away, I, had, I never loved her more than when she ran away. My love exploded for her when she ran away. Now, the way we think about God is that God's love for us somehow diminishes when we run away. But his love explodes for us. That's why Jesus told the story of the prodigal, the prodigal what? The, now, it wasn't just the pervert. It wasn't the story of the pervert or the guy who used to be a son. It's the prodigal son. You see, there are Christians who are sons and daughters, and then there are Christians who are prodigal sons and daughters. But the father's love never changes. This is the message of Galatians. So um, <clears throat> look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 again. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. It's incredible. This is why the mercies of God are new every morning. This is why with your kids when they say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be different, you actually believe them. And you stand with them. And then they screw up again and you, you still stand with them. Because there's something that is, it's something is tr there's something transcendent about a parent's love. And if, if we as earthly fathers, the Bible says, if we as earthly fathers love our children, how much more will we not be saved by the life of Christ through our heavenly father? So, you know, you've clothed yourself with Christ. What more do you need? It's what I call Jesus plus nothing. And the alternate, alternative is Jesus plus something. What is that? How much of it do you need? Who's going to decide? And, you know, the bigger the something, the smaller Jesus becomes. Um, I wrote a book about that. I wrote a bunch of books, and I finally brought my books today. I'm here not just to share God's word, but to hawk my books. Um, I'm just kidding. I brought books today, and I, I, uh, this is a book. If you get any of my books, I would love to have you get this book. Honey, I just shrunk Jesus. Okay? It's about Galatians, and it's, it is about what happens when grace isn't comprehensive. See, when it's Jesus, it's saved by grace, but just a few more things. Like Paul says to the Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect through human effort? Are you crazy? 
you couldn't save yourself, you can't keep yourself saved. It's by grace from beginning to end. Okay, so uh, guess what? When we add things to Jesus, as in, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. That's the message in Galatians. I talked about that last week. Some people said they were never coming back because we shouldn't talk about things like that in church, even though they're in the Bible. Um, I'm just kidding, okay? Anyway, or you, you have to, you know, if, if you're a good Catholic, you say, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you have to go to Mass, and you have to pray the Rosary, and you've got to go to confession, and, and, then, and then there are people who are, believe you, you, you are saved by grace alone. But if you're saved by grace, and, you know, Jesus has come into your life, you can't be a Catholic. You certainly can't smoke or drink or do drugs. Like that video sh- so eloquently presented the gospel. You can't drink. You can't get an abortion. You can't be gay or lesbian. Or you can't whatever. What, what, you know. Now, all of these things matter. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin the more that grace may abound, the more God forbid? Grace is about li- being liberated to live for God. Rules don't change anybody, but the work of the Holy Spirit in you changes everything. See? And it's not that none of these things are, none of these things is important. Everything is important. But you gotta go, we gotta go back to the righteousness scale. At one point is a person no longer a Christian. Okay? At what point? Pretty, I guess pretty good. See, that one sort of got an extra tab. See? Perfect, really good, but pretty good. Now things begin to change. Pretty bad. At what point? You ask Jesus into your life. See? Um, when we add things to Jesus, as in, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but before you know it, the but, 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 the something in Jesus plus something becomes more important than Jesus. It could be a doctrine. It could be, it could be like circumcision, a practice. Like Peter in, in the book of Galatians, uh, you know, he said in Acts chapter 15 that we're saved by grace alone and it's not Jesus plus circumcision. But in the book of, in book of Galatians, Paul has to stand up to Peter. We talked about this last week. He stands up to him he, he face, face to face. And, he, and he, he, he rebukes Peter publicly because Peter is not eating with the Gentiles. He's only eating with the circumcised people. And so what this tells us is that, yeah, you have to be, you've got you to believe in Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised. And now circumcision becomes a point of division. We can talk about a practice. We can talk about a doctrine. We can talk about a family issue. Yes, you know, we both are Christians, but we got a problem when we can't get that bad. We can't get past that problem. You know what, what just happened? The problem became bigger than Jesus. And honey, you just shrunk Jesus. You made Jesus smaller than the problem. So number three, amazing grace isn't just about how God loves you unconditionally. It's about God working in you to love others unconditionally. Which is why Paul says in the next verse, you know, Peter is not loving the Gentiles unconditionally. He's got, he's got a condition, circumcision. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, there is in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave 
nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is an, this is possible only when our relationship with God is based on Jesus plus nothing. Now look at, this is Jesus plus nothing in your family. Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. What are you fighting about? Bring Jesus into that conflict. But oh no, the conflict, the difference, the issue is bigger than Jesus. Jesus kind of gets put aside. Yes, I know, we're, we're, both, we're both Christians, but, see, submit to one another. And the next verse, you know what Paul says? Wives, submit to your husbands. A few verses later, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Look at this next verse. This is about your neighbor or the people you work with or the guy in the freeway. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? Because the Lord is near. If Jesus is near to you and Jesus is big in your life, you're not going to revile anybody. When that person uh, cuts you off on the freeway, you're going to show them two fingers. Okay? Now, you're going to put Jesus between you and that person. You know, if, if we would just put Jesus between us and that other person, they're Catholic, or if they're a Muslim, you know, the Roman emperor was a, was a pagan. He wanted people to worship him as a god. And Paul writes in, in Romans, you know, honor the emperor. How do you do that? Because you put Jesus between you and whatever other person in your life is giving you problems, causing you pain. So let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. When I read that, I think, I do not do all the right things at all the right times for all the right reasons. I have not mastered this. So, who's your daddy? Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, sperma, and heirs according to the promise. And what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time sent by his, set by his father. So also when we were children, we were uh, in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had come, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to see, under the law, and he now lived life perfectly to redeem those under the law, under the rules, that we might have the full rights as sons. Not because we're good sons, but because we're sons and daughters. Because you are children of God. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, say it with me, Abba. Oh, we, we're supposed to have the next verse up there. Sorry, guys. Okay. To redeem, and let's the next one after that. Next verse. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out. Say it with me. Abba, Father. Who's your daddy? 
God is not a judge in your life anymore. There's therefore no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus because you were already condemned. I am crucified with Christ and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And now God is my Father forever and ever. Amen.